love you, son. Dad, I am so sorry. Have her home by 8.30 p.m. You know, as the father of a daughter, I love that video. I think that is just a godly father who is proficient in firearms. Now, I also have to tell you, I've been that guy. I didn't spray a lot of axe when I was a kid, but I know what it's like to go to the door of a girl's family and say, I'm here to take out your daughter. Because the interesting thing about that is in that moment, for everybody concerned, the struggle is indeed real. Let, let me explain what's going on, especially in the, in the mind of the father of the daughter, because that young man who comes to the door, what he's doing is creating a very, very dicey situation, a situation that is, is fraught with friction. It's tight with tension. It's one of those things that, that nobody really enjoys. The father doesn't enjoy it. The girl is nervous about what her father or mother's going to say. The guy is nervous if he's halfway thinking about it because what he's doing in that instance is in a very real way presenting himself as a potential, as a possible replacement for the male lead in the girl's life. That, that's, that's what's going on. He's saying, I potentially could be the guy to replace you holding the gun at the front door. Now, in our situation, my wife Julie is one of three girls, and we have a great, I have a great relationship with my in-laws, father and mother-in-law. But I know for a fact that when Julie and her sisters were growing up, her father, who is an avid outdoorsman, after, after years of wing shooting dove in Mississippi and ducks in Arkansas, has an extensive shotgun collection. He, he began adding deer rifles a few years ago, and when they were growing up and dating, he very prominently displayed his gun collection where anyone who walked through the front door could easily see that he was quite proficient with firearms. And at first, I was a little put off by it, but now I seek to emulate that. I want to be that guy. Because what he was communicating, what I think I want to communicate in the life of any potential suitor for Emily, is that to replace the lead is not a game for the faint of heart. To replace the lead is not a game for the faint of heart. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Mac, I, I've never been that guy presenting myself at the door like that. I, I don't have any daughters. I'm not sure what that's going on. That may be true, but all of us, every single one of us knows exactly what it's like to replace the lead. You see, we're born, created in the image of God, with a need for God to be God, with a need for God to play the lead in our lives. That, that's just a reality. But we're also born as a product of sin and the fall of humanity with the desire to put ourselves in the lead. I mean, from the very first instant we're born, right? As soon as we notice that we're hungry or we're tired or we're dirty, all we have to do is go, ah! And somebody comes running. And it's a beautiful thing. We, we love that. That's awesome. I like to just go, Wah! and boy, they're, they're on the spot. 
Now, as we grow, as we mature, those biological urges give way to some psychological, some emotional, and some relational urges. But even in those situations, because of the fall, because of this need for the lead in our lives, we still like to kind of figure out how to make other people come running to do our bidding, how to make other people serve our purposes and meet our needs in life unless we allow God to do His work, unless we come to experience the presence and the reality of Jesus in our lives. And I think this is the perfect place for us to wrap up this series, The Struggle is Real. Because the fact of the matter is this need for the lead that we all wrestle with, we all struggle with it. Nobody has completely defeated this demon in any way, shape, or form. The fact of this reality is something that points us specifically to exactly who Jesus really is. You see, you've got it and I've got it. Tell your neighbor right now, you've got authority issues. Now, some of y'all doubt that. Some of you are like, no, I don't. I'm not saying it. Well, if you just refuse to say it, you've got an authority issue. (laughs) You see, we've all got authority issues. That's why we laugh at this guy. Yeah, right. You better get back to school, little boy. There's a reason South Park was on the air for so long. We, we all recognize that. How many of us as parents have never used those exact words, but we have said things like, because I said so. Now, there's a time when that's appropriate, by the way, when your little rebellious three-year-old has just stomped his or her foot at you. But we all kind of like, in, in our own ways, when, when we're fighting and demanding our way in a relationship or at work, what we're really saying is, you will respect my authority. That, that's, that's what's going on there because we all have authority issues. That's a fun word to say. Say authority. That's fun to say, isn't it? But it's against that backdrop that Jesus turns the authority issue on its head. Jesus comes along and completely redefines authority. Jesus completely, completely redefines what it means to be under authority, but also to have authority. And there are a number of ways and places in the Bible that he does this. But I want to take you to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter, the first pastor in the Bible, is explaining to a Roman centurion, Cornelius, this connection between the authority of Jesus and what he desires in our lives. Check this out. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. Peter says, this is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. 
Now, now, real quickly, let me help you to kind of understand the context here. Peter, of course, was Jewish. And his whole life, he had grown up being taught, being instructed in the fact that God had chosen the nation of Israel as his chosen people. Israel would be the vehicle for God's grace, for God's redemption, for God's Savior, his son, Jesus Christ. And so Peter grew up with this inherent bias toward Israel. You, you could understand where that comes from. As a matter of fact, this bias, just 24 hours earlier, would have prevented Peter from even having a conversation with Cornelius. He never would have walked in Cornelius' door. But one day before this, God had given Peter a vision, and in this vision explained to Peter that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. There's not one person created in the image of God who is not designed for the gospel. Jewish, Gentile, undecided, who cares? Jesus is for everybody who would choose to honor his authority, his place in the world. So, so that's important. But look at what he says here. There is peace with God through Jesus, who is Lord of all. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has been given all authority under heaven and in the earth. Jesus is our authority. But it is in that authority that we experience the peace of God. This is why. This is why as long as we are striving for the lead, as long as we try to replace God as the lead in our lives, we will never understand, we will never experience the peace of God. It is only when we choose to submit to the authority of God. Say that word, submit. Oh, that's a tough word to say. When we submit to the authority of God that we experience his peace. It is the authority of God that provides the peace of God. It's the authority of God that provides the peace of God. Now, I, I just used the word submit. And a lot of people are like, whoa, I don't know about that. I think it's something inherent in us as Americans because we remember the Revolutionary War when we fought for freedom. Freedom. Liberty and justice for all. Amen. We're Americans. And that's great. That's awesome. But when we refuse to submit to God, we are indicating that we grossly misunderstand the authority of God. The best way that I can explain it is like this. When I perform a wedding for a, a couple who's going to get married, it's incredible to me. I, I love it. And before I do the wedding, I always have some conversations with them. Some people call it premarital counseling. It, it's premarital conversations where we just kind of surface some things. We put some things on the table for them to think about, to be aware of. But it never ceases to amaze me when the conversation begins how many prospective brides sit down in my office and say something along these lines. We are so excited. Thank you for doing the wedding. Cannot wait. But... We don't want to hear anything about submission. No wives obey your husbands or anything along those lines. Are we clear? Now, of course, they don't say it like that, but that's how they mean it. You know what I'm saying? And I understand where that comes from. I get it. But again, it represents a gross misunderstanding of godly 
authority, of understanding what God is up to. I love the heritage and the history that God has given us as Christ followers, going back to, to Peter, even to the, to the present day, this century. There was a phenomenal pastor in Memphis, Tennessee named Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers was just an incredible communicator, a great leader and visionary pastor of this incredible church in Memphis. And by the way, Adrian Rogers had a voice that I believe God wants all pastors to have. I mean, he just had one of those deep, resonant voices, and when he spoke, you believed. Plus, he had a southern accent attached to it. It was awesome. It was great. But Dr. Rogers explained the authority of God in a way that I think resonates and makes such great sense. This is what Adrian Rogers said. You know, in the earlier service, I said this is what Adrian Peterson said. Yeah, it was a little bit of a distraction, but that was then. Adrian Rogers said this. We must get under what God has put over us in order to be over what God has put under us. Now that right there will preach. We have to get under what God has put over us in order to be over what God has put under us. You see, as human beings created in the image of God, we're given certain authorities. If you go back to creation. God placed humanity in authority over creation. It's our responsibility to, to steward and care for creation, to, to leverage it for his glory, for our good, to, to make sure that it's around. So that was a responsibility God gave us. That's an authority that he gave us over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the plants, the animals, all of it. But there's also the reality that he has created us a little lower than the angels, that he has created us to submit to him, that he is God and we are not. And as long as we struggle with that, as long as we try to replace the lead in our lives, we're going to have friction. We're going to have tension. We're going to miss the boat of what God intended for us. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus absolutely stands the worldly understanding of authority on its head. Jesus comes along and says, you need to understand it's different. Authority, leadership is different than anything you've ever heard before. Check this out. In the book of Luke, chapter 22, Jesus is sitting down to the Passover meal with his disciples immediately before he is betrayed and tried and executed on a Roman cross. It's the Lord's Supper. And there at the Lord's Supper, when, when Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples, I, I love the disciples, the disciples get into an argument about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus, the Son of God, has just washed their feet. <laughs> and they're going, I'm better than you, Peter. Peter goes, John, you better shut up and sit down, son. I'm going to be the greatest. Matthew's over there going, no, it's me. They get into this huge argument, and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 whoa. How many, you know, it's almost like you can picture parents at the dinner table. Enough. And Jesus says the following. He says, listen, those people who don't follow me, that's how they view leadership. They, they, they have positions of authority, and they lord it over the people that they lead. But look at what he said to them in Luke chapter 22, verse 26. He says, among you, 
it will be different. It will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Now, don't you know the apostles? If you could put yourself in their sandals for just a second, don't you know they went, how is a leader like a servant? But he had just shown them. Jesus, the one whom they had left everything to follow, the one who led them, the one who discipled them, had gotten on his knees and washed their feet. See, Jesus is showing that from now on, because of the gospel, you grow your authority by serving God and people. You want to expand your impact and your reach and your influence? Serve God and serve people. This is common sense, which is highly uncommon. Anybody that you know in the corporate realm, in athletics, in church, anybody who leads for their own benefit, for their own glory, or for the sake of leading in and of itself, that doesn't last. But the person who leads in an effort to serve and equip and empower those whom he or she leads, those are the people whose influence multiplies and expands exponentially every single time. Now, if I can, just for a brief second, let me say something. Because in church world today, there's a lot of discussion about servant leadership. Servant leadership. And a lot of people are saying, man, we need more leaders who will serve. And that's true. But make no mistake about it. Leaders must lead. Leaders have to lead. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm going to serve. I'm going to be just, just part of the team. I'm going to be just right over here. I'm just going to kind of hang out and every now and then. No, no, no. Servant leadership absolutely leads. It serves and leads. That's why it's hard. Is leadership tough? Only if you do it right. You have to do both. Look at Jesus. Yes, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. But if you'll remember, there was a time when Peter said to Jesus after he told them he would be crucified. Jesus said, Peter said, Lord, may it never be. No, no, no. You shall not be crucified, Jesus. And Jesus said what? Peter, get behind me. He said specifically, get thee behind me, Satan. Don't be a distraction from what God has called me to. Jesus knew his purpose. Jesus knew what he was all about. He was about the cross and the resurrection. And anything that distracted him from that was absolutely not from God. So Peter, Jesus, yes, he served, but make no, he was strong. He could lead also. Jesus was the one, if you'll remember, he went out and got so angry at the money changers in the temple, he made his own whip. Now, does that sound like a latte sipping mama's boy? No. He was a leader who served. And as he served God and people, his influence grew. Psalm chapter 128, I think, perfectly captures what this is supposed to look like, starting with the place where it's supposed to begin, the family. It's in the family that God has created this laboratory 
for servant leadership. In Psalm 128, we're going to rip through this pretty quickly, but I want to show you how this is supposed to happen. How many of you are husbands in the house? Let me see if you're a married dude. Hey, strap it on. Check this out. Psalm 128. How joyful are those who fear the Lord, all who follow his ways. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. Now, if you read that real quickly, you see a lot of joy. You'll enjoy the fruit of your labor. You'll be joyful. You'll be prosperous in everything you do. But how does it start? Those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord. And it's imperative that we remember what this means. To live in the fear of the Lord means this. It means that you live in humility because of your awareness of his presence. You live in humility because of your awareness of his presence. That's what to fear the Lord. It means to reverence God and to remember he's God, I'm not. Therefore, I'm going to remember my place. But when I remember my place as God has described my place, I'm not chained up. I'm not bound up. I'm actually set free to be exactly who he created me to be. And so I live in this humility, aware of his presence. That begins with us individually, with you understanding you're created by Almighty God for Almighty God. That's a beautiful thing, to know that you're created, and if you live your life for God, he will use it for your good. His glory, our good. Psalm 128 goes on. He's obviously speaking primarily to men here, but this translates. Check this out. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine. Somebody help me preach. Is that great? I'm going to come back to that. Flourishing within your home. Your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. That is the Lord's blessing for those who fear him. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine. I want, to give you, I want to give you a little assignment this week. When you talk to any woman anywhere, you can tell within about five minutes of talking to that woman if she's a loved woman. You can tell if her husband loves her the way Christ loves the church. You can tell if this is a man who has devoted himself to subsuming his wants, needs, and desires to help his wife be everything God created her to be. Man, you guys, man, game on. Our report card as husbands is in the eyes eyes of our wives. Our report card, you can tell. How are you doing as a husband? Well, how's your wife doing? That's how you know. And a lot of men are like, well, I'm the man of the house. I'm going to be the man of the house. And that's cool. That's good. God created you to be a man. Be a man. But as a husband, we are called to love our wives the way Christ loves the church. Wait a minute. How does Christ love the church? Oh, yeah. He died for her. He gave his life for the church. So it wasn't about Jesus getting what Jesus wanted. It was about Jesus helping the church be everything he intended it to be. So that's my job as a husband. 
Am I doing everything within my power to help Julie be the woman God created her to be? Is she flourishing like a grapevine in my household? It's a good question. And then it also says your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. Some of you are thinking, well, I got the vigorous part down. But you know what about an olive tree? Olive trees are amazing. This past summer, a group of us from Lake Hills Church, about 40 of us, went to the Holy Land. We were in Israel. And we were in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed right after the disciples had had that argument at the table. And in the Garden of Gethsemane today, today, there are olive trees pumping out olives that were there when Jesus was alive. For those of you scoring at home, that's 2,000 years. But those 2,000-year-old olive trees didn't start out as big, bad olive trees. They were vigorous, young olive plants. Started out kind of young, kind of wispy, kind of shallow-rooted. But they were protected. They, They were sunk down in soil that nourished them. And they... They, their roots grow together, and they anchor each other. And the trees from which they came give them shade so they can grow up in that hot Holy Land sun in the summertime. And those vigorous young plants grow up to become trees, but they do that in the fear of the Lord. In the authority of God. Mom and dad, you have been given the authority in your home to show your children how profoundly God loves them. To show them the blessing of his authority. See, here's the problem. When I strive for the lead role in my life, when, when I try to try to transfer the lead... I'm taking on a weight that I was never designed to carry. I I was not created in the image of God to be God. There's only one God. And as long as I want to be him, I want to play that role in my life, I'm taking on a weight that I can't sustain. A couple of weeks ago, I was working out, and we were were in a class, and we were going to do this exercise that required a kettlebell. And our instructor said, Mac, go get, go get a 44-pound kettlebell. I said, I'm on it. And I was one of the last ones over to the rack of kettlebells, and most of them were gone. And so I just picked up a kettlebell, and I, I picked it up, and I was like, man, that thing is heavy. So I, I brought it back to where we were going, and I got ready to do it. And, I, and our instructor, our coach, looks at me, and he goes, Mac, what are you doing? I was like, Dude, I'm fixing to throw up some serious weight. This does not just happen. He goes, Mac, I I told you to get a 44-pound kettlebell. You'll never be able to finish this. That's a 93-pound kettlebell, bruh. I was like, yeah, but I said, are you kidding me? And so I I picked up that kettlebell, and I dragged it back over, and I got the 44-pound kettlebell, and I brought it back. I was like, oh, I can do this. And then we started. You see, I would never be able 
to finish the assignment carrying more weight than I was given. You will never finish the assignment God created you for if you try to carry more weight than you've been assigned. You're not created to be God. I'm not created to bear that kind of responsibility. And when we try to, it's overwhelming. We get tired. Over time, we get drained and exhausted. The fear of the Lord is living in that humility, aware of his presence and aware of his goodness. See, when we choose not to submit to the authority of God, we forget something very important. God is love. He's love. So by definition, everything he does flows out of who he is. And so when he exercises authority over us in our lives, that's an expression of his love. So when we submit to God's authority, we're submitting to our own best interest. My daughter looked at Julie and me when she was 14 years old, and she said the following, you know, obedience is really selfish. Now, at this point, Julie and I are a little concerned. You know, you're kind of like, where is this going? And how long do we have to correct it before she leaves for college? But she said, if, you, if you're obedient, if you submit to God, your life works better. So that's really kind of selfish to do it that way. And we went, yeah, do that for her good. 14. She had figured this part of it out. Now, that doesn't mean that we always have it figured out. We don't have to resubmit. We don't have to choose to remember and live in that awareness. But it means that at least for one moment in her life, she had figured out that submission to God is what works best. That's how we experience the blessings of God, is when we choose to willingly submit to his loving authority. Psalm 128.5 finishes this way. May the Lord continually bless you from Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. It's the hill upon which Jerusalem sits. It's the city of Jerusalem itself. And it's the temple, Zion. May you see Jerusalem prosper as long as you live. May you live to enjoy your grandchildren. Somebody. May Israel have peace. You see, authority blesses communities, cities, and cultures. Authority done God's way blesses families, communities, cities, cultures, all of it. This is the blessing that is authority. I want to ask you to do something for just a second. I want to ask you to bow your head. And as you do, I want to just invite you to think about the authority of God. Do you see it as an expression of love or is it more like authority? Is it more like something to be resented, something to be rebelled against? 
because I will tell you this. It is through the authority of God that we experience the peace of God. As long as we strive and climb and clamor for the lead role, we will struggle. And ultimately, we will experience disconnection. We'll experience a distance from God that will hopefully cause us to call out to him. To say, God, just are you even there? God, are you listening? God, please say something.
forsake you. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship that he's invited you into, like the Roman centurion Cornelius, like the Jewish fisherman Peter, this may be your moment to do exactly that. Just right where you are, Pray a prayer of beginning, a prayer of commitment, and yeah, a prayer of submission. Just silently say, Jesus, I worship you. And I want to live in an awareness of your presence in my life from this moment forward. I give you my life. I submit to you. And I will trust you your authority in my life to walk in your love and to walk in your peace and your power. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed. If that was your prayer and you meant it, when our service ends in just a couple of minutes, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to take the info card that's in your program you got when you came in. Begin right now filling that out. And as you fill it out with your name and information, you'll notice there's a place there to mark, I committed my life to Christ. And as soon as this service ends, I want to ask you to make a beeline out to the front porch, out the main entrance here. And you'll see a, a little blue canopy that says LHC on it. Go there and hand that card to somebody. Let them know that today was your day. 
that this was your moment. We celebrate that in your life. And as a church, we we like to just say, as we put our hands together and celebrate that, welcome home. Welcome home.